listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. One Samuel chapter 9 verses 1 to 27. Let's hear God's word. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us where the way we should go. And Saul said to his servants, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servants, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you'll meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out towards them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place. For today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, 
Do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited. There were about 30 persons. <coughs> Excuse me. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the streets. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Continuing to read then 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 to 27. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzar. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there, Father, and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. And the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him and the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? <coughs> Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servants, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, 
He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Excuse me. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran to take him uh, and took him from there. And when he stood among the peoples, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There was none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valour whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Amen. This is God's word. Well, uh, as you probably know, here at Trinity we're in the middle of a series of sermons on the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are books that report a particular era, the history of God's people. Uh, It's clear from the Bible that the very centre of God's plan for his world is his plan to gather together a people out of the world who worship him, as we were created to. And when we get to the New Testament, it becomes clear that from the time of the New Testament onwards, people are gathered into this company of people from all nations without needing to join any one particular nation or culture. But during the time of the Old Testament, God's plan to gather for himself a people who worship him takes shape around one nation, the nation of Israel. Uh, Which is why when you read the Old Testament, a lot of it is about Israel, God's people. Uh, And 1 Samuel records for us The history of God's people, the nation of Israel as it was then, during the time that the nation first became a nation governed by a king. Uh, Next month, we are going to witness the coronation of King Charles III uh, here in the UK. Uh, King Charles is, is the latest king in a long line of kings and queens that we've had as a nation. But at the end of 1 Samuel 10, we we just read of the coronation of the very first king of Israel, King Saul. Uh, Now, we're taking two whole chapters of 1 Samuel as our text for the sermon today. Uh, Chapter 9 begins by introducing Saul to us for the first time, and chapter 10 ends with him installed as king of Israel. Uh, And there's plenty of interesting detail in between. Saul's searching for his father's donkeys, uh, Saul's interaction with Samuel, Samuel's preparations for Saul at the feast, and so on. There's no way we can look at every detail of these two chapters in the time that we've got this afternoon. But what I want us to do is focus on one key scene in the middle of the passage. 
And it's Samuel's interaction with God, with the Lord. (coughs) In chapter 9, verses 15 to 17, the first reading we had, God tells Samuel ahead of time that he has chosen Saul to be king, even before Samuel had ever laid eyes on him. Now, the fact that God gives Samuel this information helps us understand everything that follows in the rest of the chapters 9 and 10. Why does Samuel (coughs) throw a feast and seat Saul at the head of the table? Because he knows that Saul is God's chosen king. Why does Samuel outline for Saul these elaborate signs that will take place prior to them happening, as he does in chapter 10? Why do the events unfold as Samuel had predicted? Why, when Samuel gathers the people of Israel together, does he oversee a procedure for selecting Israel's first king that revolves around lots being taken, names being drawn out of a hat, as it were? It's so that it's clear, both to Saul and to the people, that Saul is God's appointed king. Information that God had already made clear to Samuel directly. Yet in that interaction between Samuel and the Lord, in chapter 9, verses 15 to 17, the Lord doesn't only tell Samuel that Saul is his chosen king, but he also tells Samuel why he he has chosen Saul to be king. And this information is even more important if we're to understand all that God does here, all that God ever does, Because it's information that gives us insight into the very heart of God. Insight into what God is like. Verse 16. The Lord tells Samuel that Saul will be anointed king and will save his people from the hand of the Philistines. Hostile neighbouring nation, constantly waging war on Israel. And why will God give his people such a king? The end of verse 16 tells us. For I have seen my people... Because their cry has come up to me. If you've been with us as we've been going through 1 Samuel, you'll remember that God's people have been suffering in various ways. They've been suffering at the hands of unjust and immoral leaders. They've been suffering under the constant threat posed by neighboring nations wanting to wipe them out. At this point in time, the threat was coming from the Ammonites. Life, in many ways, was miserable for God's people. They were well acquainted with misery. And yet what we see at the end of verse 16 is that God was not oblivious to his people's misery. Nor was he indifferent towards it. But we're told that he saw his people. He heard their cry. And we're told that all that unfolds with the installation of the king is God acting as a result of him seeing and hearing his people's misery. In a word... Everything in 1 Samuel 9 and 10 is about God's mercy. It all reveals to us how merciful God is. So I want us to see three things this afternoon. The context of mercy, the character of mercy, and the effect of mercy. If you prefer where we experience God's mercy, what it looks like, and what it leads to. Firstly then, the context of mercy, where we experience it. At the beginning of 1 Samuel 9, teaches us that the context of God's mercy is often one which appears to us to be very ordinary. 
God shows mercy to us in the midst of apparently ordinary events and circumstances. Now, for all we're told about Saul's wealthy family and handsome good looks in verses 1 to 2, the first task we see him doing is looking for donkeys. He's off searching for his father's lost donkeys. It's not a task that immediately fills us with excitement. You can imagine Saul's friends, even at the time, where are you off, Saul? Uh, to look for my dad's donkeys. Do you want to, do you want to come? Uh, no. Uh, thanks. But off he goes, along with his servant, in search of the donkeys. It's as a result of this search that, that Saul comes to meet Samuel, the man of God, the seer, as he was referred to then, God's prophet. Uh, Saul's uh, servant's idea to go and visit Samuel in verses 5 and 6, simply so that they might ask Samuel for divine insight into where the donkeys are, And the way the meeting comes about is all very ordinary. Verses 7 to 8, the servant discovers that he he happens to have something with him which will serve as a gift to give Samuel for his services. Verses 11 to 13, they bump into some women who are able to direct them to Samuel. And in verse 14, Samuel's walking towards Saul and his servant as they're walking into the city. At which point we're told what's behind the events that have led to this encounter in verses 15 to 17, namely that through this encounter... God is being merciful to his people. He has seen, he has heard, he is acting. Now, there are other interesting features of the events that lead to Saul's encounter with Samuel. Uh, Donkeys, even though they don't seem it to us, they they were animals that were associated with royalty. Saul is out looking for his father's donkeys. Saul would have been a grown man at this point, and here he is honouring his father which is refreshing in the context of 1 Samuel. So far, that that context has been one that's been marked by dishonorable sons. Eli's sons, then Samuel's sons, and the harm that they've caused God's people. But all of that doesn't take away from the fact that this is all very run-of-the-mill. It's just all a bit mundane. The frustration of looking for something that's lost and not finding it. Ordinary events leading to a seemingly ordinary encounter. And yet it's in this context that God is showing mercy to his people. Which ought to cause us to reflect on whether we recognize this way of God's working. Do we acknowledge God's mercy towards us even through what we might class as ordinary? Do we assume instead that God is merciful towards us only in certain limited ways, as he answers our prayers in really specific ways, as we experience extraordinary things? Do we limit God's work to what we might consider to be more extravagant circumstances, apparent miracles, extraordinary coincidences, powerfully moving experiences? But what about the ordinary things? Do we think that they just happen, like some kind of mechanical process in motion. It all would have seemed relatively ordinary for Saul and his servant that day. Lost donkeys, inquiring as to their whereabouts with Samuel, it's a sensible thing to do. Yet underneath all of these ordinary happenings was God's mercy. God was orchestrating the ordinary to the aid of his miserable people. He does the same today. You don't need to wait for something extraordinary to experience God's mercy. His people experience it every day in everyday events, all of which happen 
as the result of our merciful God's say-so. At this point, we probably want to start to define this term mercy. What does it mean? Secondly, let's look at the character of mercy. Mercy is a word that often we just group together with other words that we find in the Bible. Words that describe God's character. Perhaps we don't really understand how each word is used to describe something different. So what ends up happening is that our understanding of who God is and how he works, it, it becomes somewhat general. We know that God is a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy, but we don't know what particular characteristic of God is described by each of those words. We just group them together and together they give us a general sense of what God is like. Now, there's some value in that and the things that these words describe are certainly connected, but it's worth getting to grips with how they're connected, what each word refers to because the more we understand this, the more we understand what God is like. Petrus van Maastricht was a, a Dutch theologian, a scholar, and a Christian minister in the Netherlands in the late 1600s. Uh, and during his career, he wrote a large, multi-volume, systematic theology. And the second volume in the work is all about who God is, who God reveals himself to be, and what he reveals himself to be like through the Bible. Uh, Van Maastricht designated one chapter in this large volume, which was called uh, Faith in the Triune God. Uh, He designated one chapter to what he titled as The Love, Grace, Mercy, Long-Suffering, and Clemency of God. Uh, He was reflecting particularly on what God reveals about his very name in Exodus 34.6. He famously says there that his name is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in kindness and faithfulness. And what Van Maastricht then did was he outlined how the Bible distinguishes between these descriptions we come across of what God is like. He's a God of love, God of grace, God of mercy, and so on. And to summarize his reflections here, he recognized the connection between these descriptions, love, grace, mercy. They're not totally separate ideas. But he also recognized that we can speak of these things as being distinct from each other. So he put forward this summary of what the Bible teaches. Uh, Bear with me. But he says God's love is God's love is God's goodness communicated. Which is to say God's love is an expression of his goodness. God is good. Uh, He's what we might call the ultimate good. He is goodness itself. There's nothing evil within him, but he is pure goodness. And the way he loves is by communicating his goodness, by allowing you and I to taste and see his goodness. That's why he created us, why he sustains us, that's why he redeems us. When we speak of God's love to us then, we are speaking of God giving himself to us. When it comes to speaking not of God's love, but of God's grace, secondly, the Bible uses the word grace to refer to love that is not owed. God God does not owe it to us to allow us to taste and see him, pure goodness. He does not owe us love in this sense, but he graciously loves us. 
Van Maastricht's definition of grace is love that is not owed. I know that we're contemplating deep things here in a very short space of time, but here's where it's particularly relevant for us today. God's love, according to Van Maastricht, is his goodness as it expresses itself. God's grace is his love that is not owed. And God's mercy is his grace towards the miserable. That Maastricht's terms. Now, what does that mean? It means that when we speak of God's mercy, we're speaking of the way he responds to what we might call the misery we each experience. That is to say, the way God responds to us when we encounter misery. That misery is not a term that we tend to use very much, but it's referring here to the fact that life is often for us really quite miserable. You and I and ourselves often feel quite miserable. We experience misery. And when the Bible speaks of God being a merciful God, when it describes the ways he shows mercy, it is describing God coming to our aid and assisting us in the midst of our misery. This is what we see in 1 Samuel 9, verse 16, when God tells Samuel that he has seen his people and he has heard their cry. He's telling Samuel that he is aware of his people's misery. And when God tells Samuel that he's going to appoint Saul as king to save his people from the hand of the Philistines, he's telling Samuel that he is going to graciously come to the aid of his people. He shows mercy to his people by graciously coming to their aid in the midst of their misery. And what is striking about this in the context of 1 Samuel 9 is that part of the misery God's people were experiencing had been brought on themselves. When Samuel assembles the people for Saul's coronation in chapter 10, He reminds them of what they have done in demanding that God give them a king at this point in their history. He says in verse 19, chapter 10, But today you have rejected your God who saved you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. The misery that God's people experienced in the time of 1 Samuel was, in a sense, experienced as a result of external circumstances, leaders who failed the people, Uh, surrounding nations who oppressed the people. But their misery had only been made worse and compounded by the fact that in the midst of their suffering, they had rejected God, the God who saves from all your calamities and your distresses, and they had trusted in themselves. Instead of trusting in God to come to their aid in their misery, they trusted in their own plans. Now just think about that for a moment. The people had rejected God. It only made life more miserable for themselves. And what's God's response? It's not, I told you so. It's not, see, this is what happens. Now suck it up. His response is mercy. Even though he himself has been rejected by his people, he himself still comes to his people's aid. Because he is merciful. And this is the character of his mercy. Grace towards the miserable. 
It is true that we'll see that Saul will not turn out to be the perfect king. He will bring the people aid in the midst of their misery, but not in a a full, total sense. And so we'll also see then that he's not as bad as he could have been. He is, in a sense, a better king than the people deserved. God did not owe them a better king. He would have been just in giving them a worse king. But he gave them Saul, who would bring relief to his people in certain ways, because God is merciful. He sees his people, he hears our cry, and he comes to our aid even though we don't deserve it. I don't know the precise form of misery that you might be experiencing right now. Uh, Emotional distress, mental frailty, physical pain, relational disconnect. Perhaps just a certain kind of dissatisfaction or frustration with your situation in life. I I don't know precisely what it is for you. But I do know what God's attitude towards you is. It's one of mercy. He's merciful. He sees your misery. He hears your cry. He is graciously ready to come to your aid, even when your misery is self-inflicted. Each one of us needs to know this about God. Without this understanding, we'll, we'll be harsh with ourselves. We'll be harsh with others. We'll beat ourselves up when... We don't live up to standard because we've left no room for mercy. We'll become irritated by others because we'll be demanding perfection from them. But with God, there's mercy, grace for the miserable. Which is why we need to focus thirdly, finally, briefly, as we finish on the effect of ministry. Uh, Sorry, the effect of mercy. It's not stated in our passage, but one of the effects of God's mercy to his people ought to be repentance. There ought to have been a recognition from God's people that they had acted wrongly in rejecting God by demanding a king on their terms. That's what we see in Samuel's speech at the beginning of the ceremony that would lead to Saul's coronation in chapter 10, verse 17. We read, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. He said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you, uh, I brought up out of Israel, uh, sorry, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses, and you've said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Now, everything in our passage up until this point had been almost entirely positive. God had expressed his intent to show mercy to his people. Uh, Samuel had made effective preparations for Saul to be appointed as king, as per God's instruction. But then the Lord, through Samuel, reminds the people of how they had sinned against God by rejecting him and demanding a king. Why this, why this reminder of this negative past? It's because Samuel knew that there was still something lacking with the people. They weren't repentant of the wrong that they had done. 
We saw that at the end of chapter 8, even after Samuel delivered a damning verdict on the people, they, they persisted in demanding a king. And here at the end of chapter 10, as Samuel reminds the people of that same verdict, there's still no hint of repentance, even though there ought to have been. God's mercy here ought to have brought his people to repentance, but it didn't. And yet, whilst there's an absence of repentance, there's also an absence of immediate punishment from God. God's people persist in their sin, in their lack of appreciation of God, and yet God persists in his mercy. Which reveals to us another aspect of God's character. It's related He's patient. He's patient towards us sinners. The Bible speaks of God being long-suffering, which is to say he's patient over a long period of time. Petrus van Maastricht again, he actually viewed God's patience and his long-suffering as being connected with his mercy. God's love is his goodness communicated. His grace is his love that is not owed His mercy is his grace to the miserable. And his patience is mercy towards us, even in our sin. His long-suffering is his long-lasting patience. And so, Van Maastricht adds, we also see God's kindness in his long-lasting patience with us, coupled with his desire to do good. We see these three aspects of God's character in our passage today. His love, his grace, his his mercy. We see his patience and long-suffering. And all of it is expressed in a certain kindness. God is kind. Have you ever thought about that? That means, as Van Maastricht writes, he, he has a humane, sweet and mild way with sinners. He's kind. And this kindness ought to affect us. It it ought to lead us to repentance. How could we reject this kind God? And in turn, it ought to mean that kindness becomes more and more characteristic of us. We ought to be people who could be described as kind I was thinking about this a little bit in the week and a a few stories came to mind. I remember uh, my grandfather when we were young and uh, me and my cousins were having a a sleepover at my grandparents' house and uh, we'd been misbehaving, not doing what we we ought to have been doing. And I think my my nana had attempted but failed to um, rebuke us several times. And uh, and eventually my, my grandfather stepped in, told us off. And I remember me and my cousin being just incredibly upset, breaking down in tears. <laughs> and I remember him kind of almost pulling his hair out, thinking, why is it everyone else can tell you off? There's no effect, but I tell you off, and there's tears. I was, I was thinking about that. I think part of it was that he was a, he was a very kind man. 
not that, not that others who would tell us off weren't kind, but, but there was a particular kindness about him. The rebuke of a kind person is powerful. I was listening, um, some of you will have heard of, of Esther's excitement meeting Sinclair Ferguson this week. What a week she's had. And uh, we, um, uh, I've been listening <clears throat> to a few, re-listening to a few of his, uh, his addresses that he gave at a certain conference a few years ago on 2 Timothy. And uh, he gave this um, illustration from the life of Augustine, which I remembered. Um, Augustine, St. Augustine was a North African, um, famous, would, would go on to be a famous Christian bishop, hugely influential in, in the history of the Christian faith. He first left North Africa to go to Milan to go and hear a bishop called Ambrose, to go and hear him preach. Uh, Augustine was a, a rhetorician. He, was, he, he wanted to be a brilliant public speaker. And Ambrose was a brilliant public speaker, but he was a, he was a Christian bishop, a, a preacher. Augustine wasn't a Christian when he went to Milan. He later became a Christian, and he was reflecting on his life, and he reflected on that time when he went to go and live in Milan. And he said about Ambrose, he didn't expect to find great content in what he was going to say. And he wasn't really struck by the content of what Ambrose was saying in his messages. But he said what struck him was how kind Ambrose was to him. It made an impact on him. A few years ago, church where I was previously, I was interviewing part of an event we were doing. A man who became a Christian, he was a police officer. The way he became a Christian... Um, his wife had become a Christian before him. He was a police officer during the 80s. There were riots. It was a terrible time to be a police officer. It was incredibly stressful. And his colleagues, he said, were going home on the weekend after long weeks, sometimes longer than a week, working consecutively. And they were going home and they would be as stressed at home. They'd be going home to unhappy marriages it's essentially what he was saying. But his wife had become a Christian. He said he went home and she was just incredibly kind. Left a mark on him. In each instance, those people resembled God in his kindness. They resembled, don't they, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name they bear. We read the Gospels, one of the most striking things, if we're able to see it, is the kind and merciful nature of the Lord Jesus. And even in the midst of persistent rejection, even from his own people, he persisted in going mercifully to his death. All those who trust in him begin to resemble him. Mercy. Kindness. These things that are part of our character. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you this afternoon, recognizing you to be the God 
you have revealed you are faithful, you are kind, you are merciful. And we are people who need your mercy, O Lord. We ask that you would grant it to us in the midst of our misery, much of which is often self-inflicted, and cause us to be a merciful people, kind towards others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the Connect page on our website, trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.